Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. You begin to make your way there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 26. This is really um, one part of kind of taking 17 through 34. And there's a lot of things that we're going to pick up next week as we conclude this study in Christian worship that are just going to take a little bit more handling as we go through to explain those and begin to apply those to us. And so that's kind of why we split this. But both passages really deal with, uh, with the Lord's Supper and kind of how it was being uh, incorrectly uh, administered there in Corinth. And so we're going to look at some of those things today. Would you follow along with me as we read 17 through 26? Paul writes and says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not... For the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I, was, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, when I, when I think about this passage and, and just kind of what they're doing, in essence, there's this gathering that's taking place in their homes. And so we know that in the first century, they didn't gather in local elementary schools. They didn't gather in newly refurbished buildings. They're gathering in one another's homes. It's a small band of Christians. And even in this small band, even in this a uh, small group of people, which they would know everybody by name. They would know them intimately. They'd know their successes and their failures. That even in this early group, there were significant fractures. There were significant issues. And a lot of these issues that they're currently facing, uh, when Paul's writing to them, center around how they approach and how they deal with the table. Tables continue to function in uh, an important way in our lives. And so there is, there's the, the table at the fast food restaurant, right? We're, we're sitting, we're eating, we're not there typically to enjoy a fine meal. We're there to take in sustenance, do something quick, and then get out. And then slightly nicer than that is Chick-fil-A, and that's a different experience, but it's still similar. And so and then we, as we kind of move up and have more expensive restaurants, we begin to kind of memorialize and, and want to have a nice meal with our family or a nice meal with, with a guy or a girl we're interested in or a nice meal with some friends. And so those meals gathered in those restaurants, it's, they can present an image. They can present uh, an opportunity for us to engage in something special. But I can think about two particular families or uh, tables that have been important to me in my life. When I was in high school, we just moved back to the States, and, and my mom got the table that had been her grandmother's. And so it's my great-grandmother's table, and it had this uh, black paint and, and lacquer, and it was just about this thick of just all this stuff on there. And so we spent a summer just scraping the top of that and cleaning the legs up and then, and then oiling it and staining it and just making it uh, just a wonderful table for our family to enjoy. And all through high school and on through college and still today, my family gathers around that table. 
And so when I go home to my parents' house, we sit at that table and all these memories kind of come flooding back in. And so I can remember sitting there uh, when we found out that one of our family members had cancer. And I can remember sitting there and celebrating birthdays. And I can remember sitting there and, and, and finding out we're going to be moving to Texas. And so that table means a lot because of all the things we experienced together at that table. If you were to come into our house, you'd see uh, primarily two tables. And so there's a, there's a dining room table that was Valerie's grandmother's. And so when she sits at that table, as we did this past weekend, all these memories of her grandmother and everybody gathered around. And, and if you were to look at that table and you find out we have three leaves that we can put in that table. And so it scarcely fits in this room long ways, right? And so, but that table only has six chairs, like, why all the leaves and six chairs? It's because her grandmother would just put in folding, ta- folding chairs uh, right there, I guess, to, to add a little bit of differences. I love you and not y- you so much. <laughs> and so we sit at that table, and we've had some great meals with friends and family at that table. But then we have our kitchen table. And it is this round table that is just scratched on the top from our kids bringing toys and driving them on the top and to it not being cleaned as well. And we've moved it several times. And so some of the hardware that kept the top from moving on the legs isn't there anymore. And so as you kind of bump or you're cutting bread, the whole table is kind of moving since you've got to chase the bread when you're cutting on it. But that table has been so important for our family. It's the table we gather around Every night, it's the, it's the table that we disciple our kids around. It's the table we discipline our kids around. It's the table where we've celebrated wonderful meals, and it's the table where occasionally I've cooked and we've celebrated not-so-wonderful meals. But it's, it's a table that has long stood in our family as, as just this, this metaphor in this gathering place for when we've come together. And that's what the church is. The church is a group of people that you come together with, and it can be nothing else. So it's not a group of people that you loosely associate it with. It's not a group of people that you're occasionally seen with. But what we see and what Paul describes in here is the church is a group of people who come together. And this is the great misfortune of what is happening there in Corinth is, is when they come together, when they display themselves as the local church, there's terrific divisions in their midst. And, and some of us would say, this has been my experience with church. We come together as a group of people and we're trying to keep all the various things that are going on and all the reasons we don't like one another and all the various things working in my life. We're trying to keep all these things separate, distinct, and closed off. But I can tell you that when a group of people come together, there's no place for that. Because when a group of people come together, if they're going to manifest and display the church, they have to show hurts, they have to show vulnerability, and they have to extend forgiveness to one another. So let's see what we can learn from this group, uh, this ragtag group of sojourners through this life when they come together. Notice that in verse 17, Paul says in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, this is interesting because back in chapter 11 and verse 2, he commended them. He, he exhorted that they were doing the right thing. He had said, now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And so there were things that those in Corinth were doing well. By and large, in the church traditions and those things Paul had handed down to them, they were engaging in and they were seeking to maintain and seeking to uphold. But when he looked at them and looked at the base level of what it looked like for them to come together, he said, I can't commend you. And this is the difficult thing. That when he evaluated and he read the things that they had sent to him and the oral reports that he had heard from them, 
And he began to ask himself the question, is it a good thing that this church comes together? Are they honoring the name of Jesus? Are they building up one another? Are they edifying the body? I said, no. Imagine if somebody came in on, on a Sunday morning here at Ridgecrest and they were to evaluate us just on kind of how we do, right? This kind of church ninja mentality. And so they're to come in and say, man, you guys have great directional signs. Uh, parking's a little bit tight, but we hear you're about to settle that with some new parking, so that's good. So you're addressing some things that are issues, but by and large, your people can't stand one another. They're really just here to park some time and then go to lunch. And so they were to look and to say, you know, in, in this church, what we have, we have the pew crowd, we have the gray chair crowd, we have the white chair crowd, and none of them like one another. And then we have the people that sit in the back, and we're not going to talk about them because it's got nothing to do with, the, with what the seats are. It's got everything to do with where the seats are, right? And so that's just y'all. And so they're to evaluate us on that. And, and if what this would say is that every time we come together, it's for the worse and not for the better. Because when we come together, when we gather together, we are displaying the church, the local church. And it's only the local church that can do this. The church universal is never gathered together until he calls us home altogether. And this is why it's so very important to be associated, to be involved, and to join with and to commit a local church. Because it's only in that gathering and union and membership that we have a unique opportunity to build one another up that the weak might be made strong in our union, that my inadequacies might be overcome in your presence and your involvement and yours, mine. So Paul begins to kind of work through this and discuss this. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. I hear there are divisions among you. Think of the churches that you've been involved with. Think of the history of this particular church. This church was born out of division at First Baptist. This church in its history, as you begin to move through, has had historically division after division, opportunities for division. And every single opportunity to divide over is an opportunity to overcome with as well. Do you see that? Because every time we come up against an obstacle and an opportunity for division, we can be a person who, who pushes that division, or we can be a person who excuses the, the inadequacies of our leadership, excuses the, the waywardness of our membership, and we rally around Jesus and we do that together. And we see that over and over and over and again in this church and the other churches of our community. And listen, listen. Nobody's trying to hold court on past decisions. Nobody's trying to hold court on what happened at Ridgecrest when it came out of First Baptist. Nobody's trying to hold court of what happened with Ridgecrest when Sam was pastor. We're moving past it. But what we can learn from the past gives us an opportunity not to repeat. We can stay angry about the things that happened in the past, and we can absolutely repeat the things. We can be bitter towards the people that have done things in the past, and absolutely be doomed to repeat, or we can worship Jesus together, and we can overlook our differences and differences of opinion, and in that, we can gather together as a church, amen? amen. It's hard, but it's worth it. So Paul looks at them, and he says, when I look at you guys, I know there are divisions among you, and I'm hearing this report, and likely his report was coming from one side. And so he said, look, I, I, like I hear what they're saying, that there are divisions among you, and, and, and I'm hopeful that their report isn't as bad as it's made out to be. 
but divisions in the church, divisions amongst our fellowship, dishonor Jesus. If, our, if what we're known for, if our distinctives become more about our division and our separateness as a body than about Jesus, we dishonor him. And so we have to move through this and, and, and work hard work to stay together. Now, Paul offers an interesting statement on, on why it's a good thing that there are divisions, these groups that have, have broken up amongst their church, right? He says, it's, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, verse 19, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, this is curious. This is curious. Now, it's important to note that Paul isn't saying in its group A or its group B. And, and so we have group A, and you're the genuines, and group B, you're the reprobates. And you guys really need to leave and move to Second Baptist uh, Corinth, right? Or you need, to, you need to jump ship altogether. You go to the Bible church there in Corinth. That's not what he's saying. In essence, when he communicates this to you, so say the same uh, church ninja person were to come in, and they were going to say, all the people in the gray chairs, they are genuine, right? They are genuine. In, in actuality, it's probably the people in the pews because those things are hard to sit on. And if you shouldn't sit on those week in and week out, you're doing something right or wrong. And so if they were to come in and say, all this group is genuine, what would the people in the white chairs and the gray chairs say? Well, why am I not genuine? Well, why am I not genuine? And they begin to find fault in the other people. They begin to find all the various ways that they're messing up. But notice what he's doing in coming in and saying that it's good that there are factions among you so that we can show who is genuine. This is what he's doing. What he's introducing is an opportunity for everyone there to say, not, I bet these people aren't genuine, but an opportunity for everyone there to say, I want to be genuine. I want to be. I want to be included in the number. I want to be invested in Jesus. So it's an opportunity not to further perpetuate and move into their division, but to recognize that inasmuch as their division continues, it invalidates all of them. Unity takes all of us moving in the same direction at one time. Not one stronger group overcoming a weaker group, but to be unified in the gospel, unified in Jesus, takes an effort of all of us. Amen? So he says it's good that, so that those may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. And so now we begin to move and understand the particular nature of their problem. As they took the Lord's Supper, the scenario uh, arrived that they would gather, and they'd gather for a whole meal. So they'd show up at their house, and they, so they'd go over to Barry's house, and they show up, and, and, and most of them are just kind of working folks. And so they're slaves they're uh, not kind of setting their own schedule, but Barry and his friends are loaded to the hilt, and so they're all at the place when, when all the poor people arrive, and they walk in, and Barry goes, I'm like, what? He's like, oh, sorry, I ate too much chicken. I, just, I get gassy when I eat too much chicken. And so and then we're all kind of sitting there, and we go in, and we gather around our tables, and, and, and me and my poor friends, and we're hanging out, and they're like, what are we going to eat? And like, we do have some leftover bones from our chicken. We can put those in some boiling water, and we can give you some lovely chicken stock. Does that sound good to you? So you're telling me I'm going to eat broth from the remainder of the bones from Barry's chicken, and he's over there, like, burping his happy heart away. 
yeah, it seems like you're kind of picking up on what this meal is looking like. So we see that the divisions happening there in Corinth are situated largely among the haves and the have-nots. And so all those who have, all those who were affluent, all those who are kind of self-made men and women, they would show up and they would gorge themselves. They wouldn't wait for the whole church to show up. So in that display, they're showing a lack of charity towards their brother, and they're splitting and they're creating tension on the basis of what is taking place. And so he just told them simply, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's not saying that the elements you're using aren't adequate. He's saying that the, the manifestation, the display, the movement of your heart towards your brother and your sister in Christ isn't there. And so you invalidate any spiritual element that you're engaged in. You see, it wouldn't matter if we were to take the Lord's Supper every week. Every week we've got the grape juice. Every week we've got the chiclet bread. It wouldn't matter if we're doing this, but we were divided internally. Because in as much as we are divided, it can never be the Lord's Supper that we take. We have to be unified, centered on Christ. And the great misfortune with this body, he says that one goes hungry, another gets drunk, and so we see extremes on both ends. This guy who shows up and he's worked hard all day long, this woman who showed up and she's worked hard all day long, she wants to gather with her brothers and sisters in Christ, but the whole time she's there, all she can think about is being hungry. She can't think about anything spiritual because all she can think about is being hungry. And you have the excess on this end. They've moved past being satisfied in their eating, and they've moved uh, to drinking to the point of intoxication, and they're drunk. They're not thinking about anything spiritual. They're just thinking about satisfying themselves and satisfying their stomach. Neither one in this gathering is there to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They're focusing on food, and they're focusing on their satisfaction. So Paul moves in, and he begins to systematically address those things in verse 22 and really offer this stern rebuke to them on what they're doing. So he asks this question, expecting a positive answer, an affirmative answer. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And they'd say, yeah, like I've got a roof over my head. I've got somewhere I can be. He says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So this is a, seems to be a stern rebuke, especially for those who have. Their actions, their activities had moral weight to them. They saw themselves as doing nothing different than any other gathering in their community. It would have been normal, it would have been normative in their community if they were to get together and have this kind of potluck supper that for the people who have to bring filet mignon and the people who have not to show up and expect to be treated by them. It would have been normal. You can read historically and read where when the, the people would gather together, those who had lower social standings received inferior food, inferior care. They were served later, and their food wasn't as good. And so anybody were to walk in there to this church in Corinth, and and they would lose the spiritual implications of what were taking place because it was no different than any other gathering all across Corinth where the poor were clearly separated from the rich. And Paul's statement in this is that the church is decidedly different. And why is it different? Because it is this group that comes together. And in coming together, we overcome differences. And in coming together, we collectively share together. And in coming together, we overlook differences. And in coming together, the weak is made strong. 
And in coming together, the lonely finds family. And this is what we exist for. To glorify Jesus in strengthening our bonds together in union with him. So he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now the corrective he offers to their excess is amazing. Probably if I'm pastor of the church there in Corinth, I come to them and say, so check this out. We got this letter from Paul. All potluck suppers are over. <laughs> We're done with this. We're done with the potluck suppers. And they say, why? I say, because Paul said so. Uh, Bobby in the back, you've you got to quit drinking so much. Paul knows about it. It's super embarrassing. He also knows that Matilda has been going hungry. We've got to get that girl's chicken leg. And so I probably just, just nix the whole thing. That's the explanation. That's the reason why. And everybody says, well, that's kind of weird. We really like the potluck suppers, but Paul says we're done. Pastor says we're going to listen to what Paul says. So what are we going to do for an hour and a half? Paul says Twister's also off limits. <laughs> but what Paul does is he corrects it with the Lord's Supper. He's told them it's not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate. So his word to them, his instruction to them, comes straight from Jesus. You can look at Jesus' kind of installation of the Lord's Supper in Luke and Matthew and elsewhere and find that what Paul gives back to them is this stunning treatment of the Lord's Supper because what he recognizes is that when we come together to celebrate Jesus, Jesus, differences are overcome. When we come together to celebrate us, differences have an opportunity to be manifest and magnified. And it happens when pastors do it, and it happens when parishioners do it. So if I come into this church, and, and I want to make it all about me, and I want to set kind of my, my vision or all of these things, and this is the way we're going to go, and, and this is what we're going to do, then there's a decent chance we end up in the ditch. There's a decent chance that we stir up mass discord, but there's a remote chance that we'd be successful. But the same thing could happen if there's a group of members who have discord and they are unhappy with the decisions are made in leadership. And so maybe it just starts off with a lunch. You go to lunch and you invite somebody and say, Justin, you look like a discerning guy. You're on staff. Your pastor's a schmuck. Can we go to lunch and talk about him? And so you're at lunch together and Justin says, well, you know, he's just kind of half stupid. And that's right, right there, folks. He has half a brain. And the people at the table beside hear it, and they say, do y'all get a Ridgecrest? And he says, we do get a Ridgecrest. Your pastor, he's, he's incapacitated, right? Yes, because he's intoxicated half the time. Oh, my goodness, he preached drunk. So then families begin to meet, and Justin's calling me the whole time. I didn't say these things. I didn't say these things. I'm like, it's too late. Ken's already fired you. But it's okay because your wife works. And so we see how these things begin to spin out of control. And we laugh, but no, this is how many church splits take place. Someone's unhappy at something, and they try and find other people that are also unhappy with the same thing. And when they're not unhappy with the same thing, they try and pull them in and show them how this difference or this failure should result in their anger. But what Paul does, is he brings everybody back down to focus on Jesus. Jesus, at this moment in his ministry, who he's been preparing the disciples for his departure, Jesus, at this moment in his ministry, is, is facing the cross and is preparing to face terrific difficulty and suffering. But he gives the church a teaching that if it applies and takes to heart, can be 
transformative. And it'll exchange us from being a group of people who just happen to meet at inconvenient times to a group of people who display his body in the church as we come together. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, as he was being betrayed, on the night he was being betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Jesus is painting this wonderfully amazing picture of, of what his body looks like and, and of his body that is broken. And Isaiah 53 kind of gives us the head word on this. 53.5, speaking of Jesus, whose body would be broken, he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is there with the disciples and he holds up the bread and he blesses it. And when he breaks it, he's declaring that he himself will be broken, that he himself will be abused, that he himself will be beaten. And notice who the end of this is it is for you. There's this terribly beautiful thing that happens in the suffering of Jesus. There's this terribly beautiful thing that happens. And so as he's gathered with the disciples in this solemn meeting, and he tells them, this is my body, which is for you. So we remember that as we gather together, that as we're unified together and we're focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus, that he calls us likewise to sacrifice. He calls us likewise to suffer, and he calls us to do that together, to join together. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is, this is very similar to the wording that Moses used in describing the Passover meal. He says, this, speaking of the Passover, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. He knows that in celebrating that meal, in baking the unleavened bread, and eating the bitter herbs, that when their children, when they came into the promised land, and later in the chapter, it says, And when you come into the land, the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when they struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and they bowed their heads in worship. This is what we do. So Paul recognizes that the factionalism in this church can only be overcome by one thing, and that is focusing on the sacrifice of the Son. It's not better ideas, it's not better leadership, it's not more convenient times to meet, it's not better programming, it's not better signs, it's not a better building. What brings us together and stands the chance of keeping us together is a focus on Christ, Him crucified. This can be, this can only ever be the only thing that we focus on for our unity. So then he turns. He says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and blessing it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus does in this moment. He's showing them his body, and so he's linking 
uh, this wonderful passage out of uh, <clears throat> this wonderful passage out of Jeremiah, and then he links this passage here, and so he holds up this cup, and he holds up the wine, and he says, "This cup is the new covenant of my blood." So Paul has already told them that, inasmuch as we partake in this cup of blessing, we, we join in his sacrifice. Back in chapter ten, Moses, as he gathered the people together in Exodus twenty-four, is kind of initiating the sacrifice, initiating the covenant, 24 and verse 4. It says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin, and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see this bold promise that Moses makes in ushering in and beginning the covenant is joined to the words of Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verses uh, 31 through 34. As behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And shall no longer each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Jesus stands. He stands ready, he's got the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is showing you, this is giving you an image of what's going to happen to my body. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he holds up the cup, the covenant of his blood, the cup of suffering that he's preparing to drink, that he has to drink to stand for the atonement of our sins, your sin and my sin. And he drinks the cup. And he allows each of us to drink of this cup and to do it in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his sacrifice. Because as we do this, as we reflect on this practically as a people, it reminds us of the bonds that we have together. Paul had said earlier that there is one body and there is one bread, and we who are many are made one as we feast on the bread. And so the Lord's Supper, every time we take it, every time we reflect on it, is calling us back to remember his sacrifice. His sacrifice made us a body of people who could come together. His sacrifice overcomes our differences, our frustrations, our hatred at times for one another. And it asks all of us to labor alongside one another in spite of our differences because he has made us one. We maintain our distinctions. We maintain our differences. We maintain our differences of opinion. But we are one. So all those various things that could creep up and pop up and cause us to focus on them, when we reflect on his sacrifice, when we remember it, it changes our hearts. 
because it moves our hearts from a focus on self to a focus on Jesus and his sacrifice. I can tell you that's something that we repeatedly have to remember. We remember it in taking the Lord's Supper, but we remember it on Monday. We remember it on Tuesday. We remember it in the year and a half plus that we've been here at Bowie. And we better remember it when we come back. Because it's the only thing that keeps us together. It's the only thing that will unite us is the sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul tells them that they have an opportunity to join in this in declaring. Look at how he ends in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we gather together to take this supper together, we have an opportunity collectively to proclaim his death until he comes. So it calls on us to look back, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. In remembering his sacrifice, we find ourselves drawn together and made one and made whole, and we find all of our differences falling to the wayside. And every time we find one of our differences is looming larger and is more manifest and more pronounced and something that wants all of our attention, that what that is an indication of is we're focusing on ourselves instead of focusing on his sacrifice. Each and every time. And so every time we take of the cup and we take of the bread, we remember his sacrifice, we remember his death, we proclaim his death. And this is what the death of Jesus is. It's not defeat, it is victory over sin and death for me and for you. And it is an opportunity for every lost person to respond to the gracious invitation of our God to come and to be forgiven, to come and to be made whole, to come and to cease trying to be good and to seek to be made whole because the cross of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection has overcome the sting and stain of sin for you forever. Come and be made whole. We proclaim his death and we proclaim his coming. This world and all its trappings, your family and all the joy you experience with them pales in comparison to the joy awaiting at the coming of Jesus. It pales in comparison. Everything in this world wants to vie for your affections. It wants you to be in this moment and have none other. But life as a Christian is lived between the two poles of remembering his sacrifice, being transformed on the basis of it, and waiting expectantly for his coming. And so we are a people who await we are a people who await anxiously, and we're a people who await differently on the basis of his sacrifice and when his sacrifice met our lives in the midst of salvation. And so we are a people who proclaim his death and his coming. We do this in the Lord's Supper, and we do this in the way we live our lives. I want us to understand something. When we prepare to come back, and whether it's four weeks or eight weeks, it's soon. But as we prepare to come back, there exists an, an amazing opportunity for discord. 
Because when we come back into the building, there's going to be a wall, and it's going to be painted an offensive color to you for whatever reason. And we laugh, and, and we think, that's just silly. It's, it's going to happen. There was a color that was almost there, and it would have been offensive to everybody. And if you hadn't found it offensive, I would have been offended. And see, we're just back in a different problem, but it's really the same one. But there's going to be opportunities for discord. So practically speaking, pastorally speaking, when you get frustrated, we as a people, we need to stop and pray. We need to see where is my frustration coming from? Is it coming because I had this, this, this expectation that somebody led me to believe is true? Maybe it was Matt. Maybe it was, it was probably D. But you had this expectation <laughs> that it was just too high, and so you're frustrated as a result of it? Then you need to go speak to me. You need to speak to D. You need to speak to somebody about that. We want to hear from you, but all of us have an opportunity to be disappointed. But all of us, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, all of us have an opportunity to be gathered together as one, to remember his sacrifice and to let the sacrifice of Jesus bond us together. It's so amazing that, that God gives us an opportunity to, to be his body. We are not a group of people who do things well or flawlessly. We are a group of, of, of people who are plagued by sin, wonderfully forgiven, and if we rest in that and trust in who he has made us to be, a people who are wonderfully forgiven, that you are loved more than you could possibly imagine or know, then we stand a chance to glorify God. And we stand a chance to let that building be the wonderful tool for ministry that it can be instead of a flashpoint for discord that, our, that the ruler of this world wants it to be. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, its clarity. Thank you for its challenge. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us to ask the question of, what am I seeking to make more important than the sacrifice of Jesus? What am I seeking to focus on that's creating a division or a faction? And that you would help us to put those to death, not to focus on those things. Father, I pray for those who have yet to commit themselves to you They're struggling with the issues of salvation their worth the incomprehensible nature of your love for them whatever their various arguments are and frustrations are that by the power of your spirit you would move to overcome those that they would see your love for them and that they would desire to experience it for themselves and Father I pray that you would guide us in your mercy, that you would remind us of your love and your sacrifice and in your soon coming kingdom. We submit these things to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.